Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 29 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on today's episode, the stuff that matters is actually one of the main reasons we started this podcast in the first place golf course architecture. One of the things that distinguishes golf from almost all other sports, of course, is the unique and varied nature of the fields upon which it is played. As I'm sure many of you know, there's an entire subculture dedicated to discussing and dissecting the various merits and otherwise of courses both old and new. Today, we're wading into that world. Before I introduce our special guest for this episode, let me bring in my two co-hosts, both of whom are players in that aforementioned subculture, from the US, blogger, critic, analyst, author, part-time course designer. I don't think there's anything he doesn't do. Jeff Shackelford. Shack, I'm really looking forward to today's chat. Yes, this should be fun. We're, we're with one of the real pioneers of the uh, the, the internet and, and Dr. Klein, who uh, I remember I know from chats, if you can believe it, on AOL, <laughs> dating to the uh, mid to late 90s. And Butch Harmon would chime in on those chats too. So. Ooh, and we, Bob Kopp, I think. We might have to get a bit of info about uh, about that. That sounds interesting. We'll come to that shortly. In Australia, player, commentator, one part of a larger team that goes by the name of Ogilvy Clayton Courses on Mike Clayton. Clayton, I got in trouble last time I suggested you were one half of that team. Of course, there are other very talented people who play an important role in the Ogilvy Clayton design process. They just don't happen to have their name on the door. Yeah, we're one quarter of it, really, and the, the dumb quarter of it. So, um, <laughs> it's yeah. Ashley Mead and Mike Cocking are the other two guys. As, as usual in the design business, the guys who deserve all the credit don't get a whole lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in fact, they do inside the office, but you know, they, it, it's true in every business, I think, that there are guys who are really good behind the scenes who well not behind the scenes they're out there doing the stuff you That's know, and they're right. great having met them both Clates I can I can safely say yes they are both very very impressive chaps who definitely know their stuff and uh, and good guys Clates looking forward to getting your input today now just to prove how little I know about today's chosen topic not only have we got Shackelford and Clayton on board but we decided to bring in another man who's devoted much of his life to studying and writing about how golf courses are arranged he's the Golf Week architecture editor and he's got a list of credits that I couldn't possibly get through if I started now. Recently published a new book, Wide Open Fairways, A Journey Across the Landscapes of Modern Golf. Treat to be chatting with Brad Klein. Brad, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, and uh, especially with my friend, my old friend, Jeff Shackelford. We got uh, we hired Jeff to do freelance writing for us when magazines still had freelance budgets. Mm. <laughs> In the late 90s, I started Super News, and uh, he was our West Coast go-to guy. So it's nice to uh, be on the... Uh, it's nice to be still working in the business, actually. Well, yeah. there's not that many. I'm sure you both know plenty of blokes who aren't working in the business anymore because that's what's happened to uh, the media, hasn't it? Really has had struggles in the last few years. Brad, before before we chat about media and all those sort of things, and we'll come to the book shortly, I think you're recently back from a trip to China, uh, Jeff told me, and I think you mentioned it yesterday when we chatted as well. Tell me a bit about your thoughts on golf in China. It's a bit of a different, um, bit of a different game to what we know in the West, isn't it? Oddly enough, communist China is the most expensive place in the world to play golf. <laughs> and uh, so much for the populist uh, People's March and the, uh, the revolution there. Um, my, I, I have a longstanding interest. Uh, as a little quick background, I actually have a PhD in political science, taught international relations, uh, was a lecturer all over on uh, world affairs, and uh, always had an interest in uh, you know, international politics, and so China was particularly fascinating. It's kind of a holdover in many ways. And I, this is my third trip to China, and uh, uh, the amazing thing I found is that they have 500-plus golf courses, and probably less than half of them are legal. Uh, the government sort of stops them, doesn't license them, and yet they're still building them. And the thing that I found astonishing 
I finally figured this out, is that most of the golf development there is being take, uh, undertaken by state-owned enterprises. So it's kind of a shadow municipal investments into real estate uh, that are driving, uh, that's driving the uh, golf development. And like a lot of those empty airports and Olymp uh, empty buildings, uh, half of these golf courses are basically quiet and unoccupied. So it's an odd thing. Um, it's like they're playing with free state money, uh, free government money, and uh, hopefully things won't collapse. But uh, they, they keep building occasionally here. I saw a few of them, and uh, some of them are big projects. The one I particularly spent time with uh, was a, a core Crenshaw course down on Hainan Peninsula, which is the resort peninsula. It's going to be the Myrtle Beach of uh, China. You know, the northerners up in Beijing and Shanghai have cold winters, and they go down to the tropical climate there in Hainan. There are about 40 courses there. And, uh, you know, they probably do five, six, seven thousand 7,000 rounds on each of these courses a year. It's very strange to watch. Um, and um, it's a little frustrating because they're not really building golf for the masses. They're building golf for the, the elite, international business, party members, and uh, um and an and elite uh, Olympic competition as well. They've kind of adopted the worst parts of the Western golf culture, haven't they? Expensive golf courses um, with this notion of exclusion rather than inclusion. That seems to be, I've not been to China, but that seems to be the take most people have. That they, They've yeah, adopted all I, the worst stuff about, about golf in the West. Yeah, I gave actually, uh, last time I was there, I gave a talk. At, uh, it was a big conference, and I gave them a talk for two hours, told them they were doing everything wrong and, how to, and, and what not to do. And uh, luckily, when I stepped off the platform, I wasn't arrested. But, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a very strange model. As, just as an example, all these courses have these uh, big uh, groups of uh, female caddies, uh, the youngsters. from They're about 18 to 24 years old. They come from the peasantry. And in two months of caddying, they'll make more money than their parents ever make in a lifetime. But none of them are recruited into the game. None of them have access to playing. And once they get married or get pregnant, whatever, I guess they get married first – uh, they're, they're gone. So there's no real effort to bring them into the game. And it's very frustrating to see that sort of a thing where they're not really building a future. I think they're, I, I would call it like a 1% solution. If they can get 1% of the population to play, they'll fill all those courses yeah. uh, as opposed to, you know, 10% in the, in the Anglo-American world. Yeah. Bradley, is it, have you, you said you'd been there three times. With golf, have you noticed a change or a shift in the golf culture since the, the, um, the game being brought back into the Olympics? This, of course, was the great hook that everybody hung the, you know, we should have golf in the Olympics because it will encourage countries that are otherwise not uh, naturally sort of leaning towards golf to invest in the game and whatnot. Have you seen any impact in China? You would think China would be one that they take the Olympics very seriously. Are they taking Olympic golf very seriously? And is it having any decent impact or effect further down the chain? Well, as with a lot of the Olympics, I think it's designed to promote elite competition. They actually hired Greg Norman uh, as the head of the training center. Hmm. Uh, nothing wrong with Greg Norman, but uh, it, it's odd that they would focus their attention uh, on elite performance. And so I think they're following a model that uh, is uh, – I think it plays into the worst elements of golf, which is to let the professionals define the game. Yeah, indeed. Uh, interesting stuff. Just on a side note, how was the core Crenshaw course? I've heard very it's good absolutely reports about it. Absolutely fantastic. It's kind of a cross between Cypress Point and uh, Kapalua Plantation. Big wow. rolling land, great transition. Uh, and it sits on an old military base, which is really cool. And on the second tee, obviously one of the fellows who was sitting there looking at the South China Sea waiting for some invasion got bored and etched a, f a picture of Mao Zedong, which they've preserved as a tee marker on the second tee. It's great. Hmm. So you have these odd contrasts, fantastic marshes, coals on the beach, uh, the halfway houses with the old converted uh, shelters for the, for the soldiers. It's a great cultural juxtaposition. It's one of the things I love about golf and what I write about is that 
it's not just about the game and about playing. It's about the landscape, the variety, the historical uh, complexity of a culture played out right there on that uh, beachfront property. Because, mm, of course, everybody brings a bit of their own culture into the game, don't they? You see that in Asia in particular. I've had limited experience playing in Asia, but it's a very different game to what we play down here in Australia. And it's all golf carts. Sometimes caddies on the carts. They've got the rakes on the carts. They get out and rake the bunkers. It's just a... It's a totally different experience. Brad, uh, I haven't had the opportunity to read your book, but our other two, uh, our other two co-hosts have, and this is mainly what we got you on the show to talk about. I did read a brief excerpt just before we started chatting today uh, where you talked about being involved a little bit in the old McDonald project. I wonder whether you could just start, before I hand it over to the other two guys, just give us a, a taste of what being involved in that, has that changed the way you do your day job, so to speak, of critiquing golf courses and looking at golf course architecture? No, uh, I, you know, first of all, it's not the first time. Uh, I was actually much more involved in a, in a municipal project right here in my hometown with uh, Pete Dye, uh, where we built, a, a, and I shepherded the whole project for eight years. So I've seen that. I think what, what you do get an appreciation for, this is your question, I think, it's one thing to write about a golf course, uh, and Shackelford knows this as well. The last thing you ever want to do when you're looking at a golf course for the first time is judge it on the way you play. Uh, especially me being a mid-handicapper, but you're trying to see what the land was and how it got to be where it is today. And I think when you spend time over years looking at a golf course evolve, when we when I first got the, and saw that site in uh, probably 2004, it was just a big field of gorse, and you, you had no idea what was out there. And gradually it unfolded, and uh, Tom Doak and Jim Urbina, with the help of George Botto and um, and Mike Kaiser, of course, uh, kind of shaped it uh, by clearing it. Uh, they had an idea. They were going to sort of do a template holes of, of Rainer and McDonald uh, modeling. It's kind of after the National Golf Links of America. And you watch it unfold slowly. And I'll never forget, uh, Bill Court told me once, uh, he said, that the most important element in golf course design is time. And the theme that I played out in writing about it and that I really got to appreciate was uh, most of what happens uh, in golf course design, I think, is walking and talking. I think uh, the people who do it on a plan, they deliver you know, this big fat set of documents, they ship it to the, the contractor, and then uh, they approve it, and it's all indexed and budgets and uh, spreadsheets. That's not golf course design. That's budget construction management. Golf course design takes place in the field. So what was great about that, and it confirmed and it deepened my appreciation, is the, is the slow process of thinking out Letting things kind of develop, uh, not trying to anticipate too much, and letting step by step let the land reveal what you're going to do for the next step. And I think you, you learn that, and I think it helps your judgment of a golf course because you, you kind of see it as a, an evolving piece of land rather than, you know, oh, I hate this bunker or a forced carry. And instead, and instead of seeing it as shots, you see it as uh, particular forms of landscape, design, uh, beauty, aesthetics, texture, variety, wind, all those uh, ground elements. Um, and so I think you get a very different sense of what goes into a golf course. Appreciation. I guess what you're saying there is uh, don't let accountants design and build golf courses, which we've probably had a fair bit of in the last couple of decades. Shaq, I'm going to throw it to you. I'm sure you and Clates have got a million questions about the book specifically, which will touch on a lot of these topics. So take it away. Yeah, I do want to ask something though about China before we move on from that. I'm, I'm curious um, Brad and I don't know how much interaction you've, you had with um, Corin Crenshaw or any other architects you, you've, you know who are working over there but do you sense there's any awareness or, or guilt or recognition that, um, that we appear to just be exporting a lot of the things that got 
golf into trouble here, uh, or is there just the view that things are so bleak that we're just gonna we're gonna take the work while we can get it and let them deal with this? Well, I, I got to say, uh, I uh, I spent quite a bit of time with Bill Core on that site three four years ago, uh, and so and he was at that talk, and he was uh, he, I think he wrestled with all of these issues. I think there are two different models of golf over there. Most of it is this big corporate real estate, you know, the kind of Mission Hills thing. Uh, and, and Brian Curley, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Brian uh, Schmidt and, I'm going to get their names wrong, Schmidt and Curley. Yeah, Curley and Schmidt, Brian, Brian, yes, Brian Curley yeah. and Lee Schmidt. And Lee yeah. Schmidt. I think they're very good at exporting a particular kind of big construction model at the Mission Hills course down in uh, Shenzhen on the mainland, uh, they they have ten courses: Ernie Els, Olothabel, um, a Montgomery course. Half of those architects, uh, half of those names, players never even saw the course till it was finished. It was a big construction project, and they're very good and very adept at moving dirt and, and meeting the needs of a client. So, you know, I think the, the dominant model there uh, is to build a big, impressive golf course, and the Nicholases and the Robert Trent Jones and, and Reese Jones is, is are involved there. I think with uh, Corn Crenshaw, they had a particular client who really loved golf, uh, and uh, the city group, uh, Civic, was the development company, and Chairman Wong was his name, and he was a heavy smoker, heavy drinker, and a heavy lover of golf, and he'd been all over the world, and he, and he really loved and wanted that Lynx course kind of feel. And I think that there, uh, Core in particular, I think he, to- he spent a total of 140 days on site. It was about 30 visits. He spent a lot of time. Wow. And they hardly moved any dirt. It was massaging and, you know, the way those shapers work in particular. Dave Zinkin, I think, was heavily involved there. Uh, they took a very different approach. And I told them at the time that they had a chance to set a model for a completely different path of development. And right up the road now, I think Tom Doak with his crew is doing something along those lines where they're, uh, they're building it for uh, people who like the game as opposed to people who want to be in the business. Mm. And uh, so, you know, I think it's like with anything in golf. Uh, there are different niches and models and sectors. And um, I, I'm, my hope is that that course, it's gotten worldwide attention. It's been on, it'll make all these lists. Uh, I think it's going to really help inspire a different approach to the game. Uh, having said that, it's a very private and very exclusive and very expensive golf course. Uh, but it's a private club, and it's not designed to sell anything other than uh, the beauty and the tradition and the classic Lynx character. So I, I, I think, to be fair, Bill Core really wrestled with that. Yeah, no, I would expect him to. I just wonder how many uh, some of these other people do. And and uh, and the other thing I'm curious about, having not been there, um, and, and I know you're a strong believer in, in people getting into the game through caddying, but also through uh, golf courses that are, that are not a full-length 18-hole, uh, seventy-five hundred yard course. How, how do people in China, even even the wealthy, how do they begin and learn the game? Uh, when because all I see are these massive behemoth courses and that are hilly and brutal looking. How do they learn? I have no idea. Um, yeah. it's a problem. You know, and it's this whole kind of clubhouse experience. You got to rent, you oh. get outfitted the clubs. You got to get tees, <laughs> golf balls. You got to get scorecard. You buy a pencil. It, all you get a locker for your shoes. Uh, the, the, the 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 ritualistic lunches, all that uh, stuff, which has nothing to do with golf. Um, and it's intimidating. So, yeah, it's intimidating. It's expect- they do have a lot of practice ranges at these courses. Uh, we were at a course 
Uh, the odd thing, of course, when you go to China is there's these cities of four or five million that you've never heard of. Uh, we were in Keijing where uh, Ernie Els is going to do a project uh, tied to an existing golf course, and the, cl- and the driving range was mobbed, which was great to see. And that was within mm-hmm. a bicycle range of the city. So I think they go to ranges uh, mm. before they go out on the game. Um, um, yeah. And at least those aren't fully mechanized, and they don't have caddies on the range. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, like they, they, it's like they take a caricature of the game and then develop it, which is not unusual for uh, a developing society trying to showcase its you know, late-coming uh, modernity. Mm-hmm. So that's how they've done it. A little bit frustrating. How much of it do you think is influenced by what they see on their TVs from America, Augusta and places like that? I don't think it's Augusta. I think it's the PGA Tour. Um, okay. yeah. Big difference. <laughs> uh, uh, it's also the country club mentality. That um, you know, it, I mean, you know, it's striped fairways. It's uh, the caddy lining up the cheat, the cheater line on the golf ball and the tee and the putt, all that stuff. All this, all the stuff that slows the game down to a crawl and makes it look like you're not working and not uh, exerting yourself. So, partly the PGA Tour, I think, partly the caricature of a country club, and of course, the uh, the irony of all of this, and I fight this all the time, is that in the United States, golf is overwhelming, and all through the world, it's overwhelmingly a public game. Eighty mm. percent of golf courses are public access. You know, eighty uh, percent of golfers are daily fee players. So, the way in which the and I struggle with this in my writing and in everything I do is that the game is dominated by the tour and by the private sector, but that's not how it's played, it's not how it's enjoyed, and it's not, that, that's, that's not the lifeblood of the game. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a frustration to have to kind of counter the, 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 the delusional conversation about the game. The, the conversation about 300-yard drives and back tees and fancy this and luxury and overseeding and all that stuff has nothing to do with how the game is actually played and enjoyed by real people. Mm. So true. Um, now, the uh, the book is uh, not what I expected, to be frank, um, and 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 that's I say that in a good way. I I I, uh, I knew you were going to use some of your writings from Golf Week, but this is really more of a a memoir and something you've kind of taken and uh, to a different place. What uh, what compelled you to do this? Well, for one thing, uh, my articles in Golf Week have gotten shorter and shorter over the years because of space <laughs> limitations and editors' judgments that readers have no attention span, although I think that's actually a function of attention span declining by editors. Yeah. Comma. And, uh, so None of the ones just, we work for, but yeah. All of the ones I work for. And, oh. uh, <laughs> so the uh, – and I understand that. You know, when I started 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I was writing 1,500 word columns. Now my columns are 827 words. Uh, so the point is I couldn't excerpt them because they're too short. Uh, I couldn't string them together. And that was actually good because what happens when you write a book is it evolves. Uh, and as I start, what I wanted to do was write a sequel to my first book, which was a collection of short essays, uh, Rough Meditations. And as I collected them, I realized, gosh, they're awfully short. They're not as connected. And uh, I have many more interesting stories to tell. And as I was starting this, my father died, not unexpectedly. He was sick, long illness. And so I, I used the opening chapter uh, to talk about him because he didn't play golf. Uh, and I got to know him slowly and it was complicated. So without giving away too much of the pathological, neurotic, New York Jewish family that I grew up in, uh, I managed to use sports and golf as a way of escaping a completely insane family. So I kind of tell that story with pathos and humor, 
and uh, I got to play one hole with my father, uh, which I talk about. Uh, and um, so that was the the occasion for it. And then I, I've traveled. I travel 150 days a year. I've been doing it for 20 years. And I wanted to let my wife know that I'm actually doing something constructive in, when yeah. I'm out there. So I decided to focus on a couple of areas. And I spent a lot of time in certain cities. So uh, I was a consultant to the city of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Because uh, I have a lot of experience. I've actually written a book on U.S. nuclear policy, and I knew the history of the atomic bomb, and they hired me to help them explain about their golf course and the role it played in the community. Or I have a chapter on Bandon and the involvement with Old MacDonald, or a fascination like a lot of people with the Sandhills in Nebraska, where I've spent a lot of time. Yeah. So I, I, instead of writing discrete, you know, disconnected essays, I wrote, um, sort of embedded myself in particular cultures, whether it was the Bronx, New York, with Donald Trump, or, uh, you know, Los Alamos, New Mexico, or with Tom Doak and Jim Urbina at Bandon. So that's the book. It's kind of yeah. uh, going out. It's like a you know, New York City kid goes out to the West. This is my, uh, you know, um, journey out there. What do you call it? The uh, road trip. Road trip yeah. book. Why do you think... Sorry. There you go. Why do you think, Brad, that Sandhills seemingly has become the, the most successful of those courses out there, Belly Neal and Dismal River and... Yeah, it seemed like it was the first one and it's still the most loved one and the one that people want to go and play the most. Is that because it's the best out there or is it because it was the first or? Honestly, it's because Dick Young's cap, the owner, is the cheapest guy of all and he's smart. So he didn't yeah. waste any money. Uh, that's, that's a serious answer. Uh, Sandhills is successful because it didn't cost a fortune uh, and because the Corn Crenshaw established their reputation and they got a lot of smart, wealthy people to buy into it who don't play the course so you've got a lot of members who kind of joined it for the cachet value and it's only open a few months a year so their expenses and uh, believe me half of what that book and everything I do in architecture I probably differ a little bit from Shackelford on this one I, I'm very serious about the business side and I think golf I call it a great game but a lousy business and everything I write about is about making the business work and Sandhills works because it was inexpensive he did a lot of things himself. He didn't throw money away on clubhouses, and he didn't need to uh, have the place filled year-round. And uh, he's got local people who are thrilled to work there, and he made the local folks part of the culture. So when you go there, you go on his terms. Uh, and I think it's not really – I think everyone else who came after that spent too much money, like a Bally Neal or Prairie Club, or they, yeah. they tried to be year-round, like Sutton Bay. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not a model for everybody. Bandon succeeds because Kaiser is smart, doesn't spend a lot of money, and he's got the ocean. Well, Sandhill su- succeeds because uh, Dick Young's cap is smart and cheap, and the land is fascinating. But it's hard to make that work. And the connection to Australia, of course, is that Richard Tatler's exactly the same. He's smart and he's cheap. <laughs> and so bamboogle June's works because... He knows Mike and Dick well, and I'm sure they pounded that into his head that do it cheap, do it smart, do it cheap. And it works down here for the same reason. In a climate where everyone says you can't make any money out of golf, Richard Tetler makes money out of golf because he's followed the exact same model. Yeah. Brad, Although he's a, he's a free spender compared to Dick. I mean, at least you know you don't feel like the walls of the lodge at, uh, at uh, Barnboogle are going to fall down in a, in a strong wind, whereas at Sandhills, I don't know how well put together those buildings are they've they've held up so far right brad uh the, you mean those boy scout cabins on the dismal those, yeah. yes those yes 
Brent, well, uh, he doesn't. I don't think he has electricity in them. I know he doesn't uh, have clocks and TV. Yeah. So now, while we're way, on the, oh, the go other ahead. way, that's the other way that this is. I love Dick Young's cap is smart. He charges the media, so he doesn't give. He doesn't comp anybody. Yeah. You know? So that's real smart. Now, the Nebraska chapter, uh, you were you were pretty rough on the Prairie Club, which I, I uh, am associated with, and having done the horse course with Gil Hans there. But I noticed you uh, you were you ripped the place, the Grand Marsh course and the uh, the Layman course and the Lodge, but there's no mention of the uh, the horse course. Did you play it when you were there? Yeah, I did. Uh, I'm sure I was drunk when I did. Um, it was the afternoon. I, it was well, enjoyable. That was part of the design of the golf course was that you could carry a bottle of beer with you while you played. That was that's that's integral to the business model. Well, you know, uh, um, how should I put this? Uh, when you're well, a ahead. critic, okay. when you when you're a critic, you can't like everything, and uh, certain things kind of got to me. That was on the fifth day of a long trip with about thirty uh, golf week raiders. Uh, I thought, I frankly, uh, uh, maybe I was a little tired and cranky by then. But I thought the building didn't quite work. I thought that the uh, the pines. I don't care what you think of the building. What about the horse course? Horse course was fun. I have to admit, and I and I saw and I walked the routing. I, Paul Schock took me around, the owner, and we looked at the routing of the uh, the course that Gill was going to build the third course. Yeah. And I and I thought, gee, now you're finally going to get a golf course along the river. I was amazed that the first course by Graham Marsh, the Pines course, didn't go near the river, even though it was behind half the greens because they had trees and mounds there. So I was surprised how modern it was shaped. And I, uh, so you know, but yeah, uh, but I saw that horse course, your horse course there. Uh, as a kind of a, a holding uh, action until they got a, a real golf course, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. Okay. It, was, it was a lot of fun. It got me through two uh, scotch and sodas. Good. Perfect. Scotch and water. I'm sorry. Scotch. I take my scotch straight up with a drop of water, no ice. Well, the water up there is wonderful. It's very pure. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I have to. Good. So. Uh, but it's a long. It's a long way off. It, you know, you think Sandhills is yeah. isolated? Gosh. You know, now we're however many years into this model of places that are that are the kind of destination uh, golf resort. Uh, what do you think? Uh, are, are is it is it working? Is it is it now becoming a fad, or do you continue to see people wanting to do these kinds of projects? Well, I, I think it's a small niche, um, and we're going to find out how small it is with Streamsong because Streamsong is the first time the the thirty six hole property. Um, in the middle of nowhere, equidistant between uh, Orlando, Tampa, and Sebring, Florida, dead center. We're going to find out with that one uh, if remote in the middle of nowhere works with an upscale East Coast market. Uh, you know, I, I think what I worry about is all these projects is that there aren't that many people who can walk and play golf four days in a row. Yeah. So that's a big issue for Kaiser at Bandon. Uh, mm-hmm. He's that, you know, and it's. Uh, um, so, the, the, I worry about the next generation of golfers because they didn't learn it the way we did, um, carrying their bag, playing 36 holes, and just kicking around all day. So, yeah. um, I don't think it's a big sector of the market. I think it's an influential sector. I think it's a group that talks. I think that that group of people who love that stuff, they're on Golf Club Atlas and various other influential websites, but they don't spend any money. They try to get their golf kind of cheap and uh, it's hard for them you know people go there once and that's it uh, yeah. pe- people go to Bandon once and they and they feel like oh that was it they, you know, they tick off another thing on that the so called bucket list so I worry about how deep that market is 
That's mm. my only concern. Right. But it's certainly a passionate group. How do we go back to that model you talked about of, you know, I think probably all of us here kind of learnt the game. We were talking about, you know, put your bag on your back and go play 36 holes with your mates. How do we get back to that? I think this is what Tiger was kind of alluding to with the caddy comment the other week, maybe, Shaq, of yeah. we sort of lost this, this, this path into the game which breeds people who are genuinely interested in golf. And what we seem to be breeding is people, as Clades described on a couple of episodes ago, you know, cart driving, beer drinking golfers, where it's really not about the golf, it's about the driving of the cart and the drinking of the beer. How do we get back to the model where people actually get, you know, genuinely infused and passionate about the game? Well, you know, uh, I worry about the model set by the PGA Tour. And um, if, if, if we saw more of, the, more of the passion and the interest like we had at the Ryder Cup, I think that'd be great. Uh, if we see what we see on a normal week and the FedEx Cup, we're in trouble. And uh, it's a small difference, but um, I love watching people play quickly, uh, have fun, enjoy, be commit committed, and uh, variety and interest in the golf course. And um, I think there's too much emphasis on celebrity, you know, these Michael Jordan sightings or, uh, you know, celebrity stuff. All that stuff to me is garbage. And... Uh, it's, a, it's some kind of crass attempt to grab ratings. But I think, and, and to be serious here, what I'm seeing now, and it's very encouraging, at private clubs all through the country now in the United States, what they're, what they're doing is they're adding forward tees and they're shortening golf courses. And what I, the, the successful clubs that I see now, and not just clubs, but golf courses, they're making sure that their course is playable from 6,300 yards or from 4,700 yards. And I think people have finally realized that if you cater to 7,000-yard players, you'll go broke. Because there aren't enough of them and they don't pay the bills. So I think the game is moving in that direction of kind of play it forward, uh, shorter, more accessible, more fun. Um, and those clubs, the, cl the successful golf courses now, they're playing shorter courses. They have practice ranges. They're catering to women. Uh, they have uh, less emphasis on the clubhouse culture. And uh, they allow and encourage walking. And um, I think that's all that stuff is where the game has to go. Mm. So, so Brad, tie into our pet topic of, I mean, surely that's all caused by the ridiculous ball, isn't it? Uh, you know, the courses have got to be this obscene length because they've had to be because they've got to cater for the PGA Tour players. So in a place like Australia, the, the best clubs that were designed to have tournaments have all stretched themselves out because they want to have the Open and the Masters. And surely if you restrict the ball, you can control that somewhat. Well, I don't think it's just the ball. You know, we're looking at uh, three woods that hit, they hit 300 yards because there's no uh, restriction on the coefficient of restitution on a 12-degree club anymore. So uh, exactly. some, of it, some of it's equipment. But um, I, I do worry about one of the things that, that drives golf in a healthy way is the illusion that you can occasionally hit a shot like the one you watched on TV. And I worry about the perception if they restrict the ball across the board – I think it's going to have a very serious, uh, uh, what's the word, kickback or a, a, a res a negative response among the public. I, I think they really need to go to a separate set of rules for the tour. Um, I don't understand. They're, they're playing separate rules anyway. They're playing a one-ball rule. The average yeah. golfer doesn't play yeah. uh, stroke and distance on out-of-bounds. The average golfer doesn't finish their three-foot putts. Uh, the average golfer is using laser yardage for rounds, so there's already effectively a, a bifurcation. I don't see why they don't just recognize that. And, yeah, I mean, but I think it's a disaster politically to restrict the ball. It's too late. They should they should have done that. For, uh, they were asleep at the wheel, or at the Byron. Uh, they were asleep at the 
Iron Byron yeah. uh, in the early 90s. And we can, that's a whole other discussion. I mean, I couldn't but, agree um, with just bifurcating the game and restricting the ball for pros. That's clearly the, it's always been, I think, our argument is that, I mean, make a ball that goes further for women. But, I mean, it's just this madness that how far these guys hit the ball. And you're right, it's, you know, it's not just the ball. People are saying, well, it's the ball. We can't make the ball go any further. But, well, maybe the ball won't go further, but you can make clubs that'll make the ball go further. You'll make three woods with that'll drive the ball 300 yards. I mean, it's not. There are lots of ways to make the golf ball go further, rather than just, other than just making the golf ball itself go further. Well, the, I think the discussion is the ball is the easiest object to focus on as an as an element of control. But uh, what I would love to see, uh, I think Pete Dye told me this once. Uh, these these aerospace engineers once they you know once the Cold War ended, all the aerospace engineers went to work for Titleist and and Nike, and yeah. they figured it out and they and they were surfing by nine a.m. because they'd figured out the aerodynamics of the golf ball by eight thirty. How cool would it be to develop a golf ball whose aerodynamic qualities deteriorate if it's hit faster than one hundred and twenty miles an hour? Mm-hmm. If you're long, just make it a declining curve, they could do that. So you would actually optimize performance at 114 miles an hour. And beyond that, you'd have to manipulate the ball and get skill rather than just bash it as hard as you could. Aerodynamically, that ought to be possible. Kind of a, you know, sort of some reverse uh, design to the dimples so that beyond a certain level, uh, the air, air performance, uh, whatever, aerodynamics deteriorate. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd be willing to contribute $10 to a research project that would pursue that model. <laughs> Hmm. I'm sure so Shaq generous. Was, well, you would, yeah. State of the game fund, Shaq. We'll set it up on PayPal. Everyone. Can yeah, contribute. I was kind of hoping Jack Nicholas, when he unveiled his new golf ball this week, was going to actually have already done all the work for everybody, um, especially since the company he partnered with is the one that's actually made the ball that the USGA has been uh, using for, for testing. But no luck. Mm. No. Mm. It was a thought. Yeah. Brad, just on, and you've spent your life obviously studying golf courses, and you're obviously a very cluey guy, and you think about things at, at all sorts of levels. And we've talked to Clates about this in the past, and I just want to get your take on the notion of the impact of the design of golf courses and well-designed golf courses on participation and people enjoying the game and taking to the game. I suppose, put simply, if people were introduced to the game at Royal Melbourne, for example, rather than uh, Muirfield Village, perhaps, or you know, one of the PGA Tour courses that uh, that we often deride on the show. Would golf have a healthier? Would it be a healthier game? Would it be a better game for that? Do you think? Uh, I, I think it would be. Um, you know, for one thing, when I went to Australia in nineteen eighty nine, I could get on Muir, uh, I could get on Royal Melbourne pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, it's not that easy to get on Muir. It's not even easy for the members of Muirfield Village <laughs> to get on their own golf course. Jack yeah. throws them off. So uh, access is certainly an issue. Uh, mm. Now that has to do with club structure and membership, but also in terms of ability. And the beauty of a Royal Melbourne is anybody can go out there and play it with one ball, and you'll never lose a golf ball, and you'll have a great time. You might shoot 129, but you'll do it in three hours, three and a half hours. So, um, you know, th- there are a lot of issues of what drove the game into this corner. Uh, I think that there's a particular kind of uh, egomaniacal character to the modern golf course architect. Uh, you see that with Tillinghast and McDonald um, and uh, with Robert Trent Jones Sr. Uh, and a lot of other people who I'm not going to name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, who, who are intolerant, who don't do meetings well, who don't take criticism well, and uh, 
they're enamored with uh, their name atop something on a on a list. So, um, you know, where that kind of got diverted into this uh, notion of hard being good, I don't know exactly, but somewhere it happened in the 60s or 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, with forced carries and lateral, uh, with, with uh, you know, pawns in front of grains rather than on the side. And I don't think it was Pete Dye, because Pete Dye's courses actually are quite easy to play for an everyday player. Uh, you, you'll get around them, most of them. I, but somewhere along the line, some crazy delusional notion uh, of, you know, putting the golf course on the map, on the cover, making it harder, signature stuff, all that. Uh, and it's... Um, you know, I, th- I think they got a little carried away with testing the pros, basically. And um, a, a, a number, and Trent Jones kind of was the model for that, really, in terms of shifting golf. Because with Robert Trent Jones, it, golf went from a ground game to an aerial game. And you can document that very clearly in his post-war, post-World War II design. Um, you know, monitoring drives, moving uh, bunkers out so that all the cross features at Oakland Hills, for example, were pushed to the side. And you went from a hopscotch kind of chess game to uh, down the middle. And it became kind of vertical bowling. And uh, it had nothing to do with variety. And all those odd angles that Rayner or Tom Simpson or uh, George Thomas wrote about were out the, out the, out the window. And I, a lot of it had to do with uh, Trent Jones looking for work, yeah. um, very simply. I, I think the economic principle is pretty clear there. They were uh, they were looking desperately for work, and he never recovered from the depression, and he spent the rest of his life trying to erase the past. Uh, changing uh, topics a little bit, I, one of the things the chapters in the book that I really enjoyed was the uh, the old McDonald chapter and your involvement with that project, um, and uh, you you get into the Lido. Uh, which was the uh, initial impetus for Kaiser to, to build some sort of a CB McDonald course. I've heard he is still obsessed with recreating uh, the Lido, and you actually uh, had been on the golf course and, and even uh, saw what, what remnants there were of it. Uh, do you think that's a project that, that's a, a worthwhile cause of his, or does that, does that interest you and, and excite you like it obviously excites him? Well, I wouldn't call it an obsession. Um, the Lido, for you know, was the famous uh, seaside course that was dredged out of sand marshes on on the coast of Long Island uh, in 1918, 1919. It was a massive construction project, two billion cubic yard, two million cubic yards of the uh, marsh, and it lasted twenty years. And they built a crazy hotel, and it went bankrupt. Uh, and then the, it then was sort of moved slightly to a municipal golf course that I played uh, in the in the seventies uh, when I was a kid because I was right down the road. Uh, so Kaiser was hoping to rebuild that, and he actually hired George Botto to look at uh, a site uh, that became Old McDonald and Bandon to see if it would work. And he wanted to actually recreate the entire golf course relationally. You know, the holes, the routing, the stuff didn't work. He then went around Long Island for about two years looking mm-hmm. for a site, and they had a lot of meetings, and they met with uh, state officials, and they were they were close to negotiating a deal for a public uh, park conversion to build a version wow. of the Lido. Until very recently, and I think he's given up on that, and instead he's uh, adopted the the Wisconsin project. So uh, I think, you know, I, again, I don't, uh, I, uh, I don't think it's an obsession. I think it's a kind of a dream uh, that you know. Here's a guy who's uh, he's realized his dreams twice, so he's got maybe one more to go. 
Yeah. And uh, how cool would it be to recreate oh. it? I don't know if you can, but it would be kind of interesting. But, you know, from an environmental regulatory process, you can't get the same thing. You could get close to it, maybe. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if old McDonald is his version of Lido, great. So, yeah. Do you have um, any sense of how great the old Lido course was, Brad? Was it like NGLA or was it that good? Or was it, you know, I mean, do you have no sense uh, how great it no, was? I have, a, I, have a, I have a pretty good sense. I mean, I've seen the, uh, a lot of the old aerials. I've walked the site. Um, and you could kind of see where things were and what the holes would have looked like. Uh, now, I don't want to overstate it. It would, like, if you looked at it, it, it would be scruffy, it would be messy, it would be windswept. Uh, the eighth hole, the long part three on the water, kept eroding and falling into the ocean. Um, a lot of those slopes were kind of unmaintainable given the, uh, both the unstable soil and the heavy winds. So, you know, structurally, it was not a sound project in some ways. Uh, but I think it was a fat, it would make a great movie. I think it would make a great movie. Um, I'm not sure it would make a great golf course <laughs> over time. <laughs> but uh, I'd love to see the the, the movie uh, with the screenplay by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, epic. <laughs> Be an epic. Clates, you've read all three of uh, of Brad's books. I imagine you've got about a million questions you want to ask, and we far too often we don't uh, we don't hear enough from you. So I want you to to hook into Brad and ask him a really pertinent question that he's going to give us a. <laughs> Fascinating answer to. Well, rough meditations I love, just a great collection of essays. But you'll be interested to know, Brad, this week we had a massive storm went through Melbourne on Tuesday night. And I've been to a couple of golf courses since. I know it's a favourite topic of yours. I was amazed at the amount of improvements that were caused by this storm blowing over massive yeah. trees. There's a Commonwealth, there's a beautiful par 3, the ninth or one of the best par 3s in Australia. There's a massive old cypress tree with a with a sign banged onto the side of it, sort of pronouncing it's a North American cypress macrocarpa. I got there on Wednesday morning. Here was this thing lying on the ground. I mean, nothing could have made me happier. I and mean, it was a war to cut this thing down. We've literally had thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of improvements made to golf courses in Melbourne this week because of a massive storm went through it and blew over trees that would have been a war to cut down. So, you know, I know you've written a lot about restoring courses and taking trees off. There's a great photo in Wide Open Fairways of the hole in, was it Firecrest in Washington? Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, before I and mean, after. I mean, 80 a, years apart. What a damning photo that is. I mean, why can't people see this stuff? It's stuff? To me, it's stuff that's so obvious that, you know, you write about it a lot. Jeff has, Jeff has spoken about it, written about it. We've all seen it. Why is it so obvious to one group of the golfing population, but the other half is, well, not the other half, the majority are completely blind to the negative aspect of trees on golf courses? Well, you know, uh, my wife, who loves me very much, bought me a, an 18-inch chainsaw for one birthday, and the next year she bought me a 16-foot pole saw. So, <laughs> uh, so she understands. I have a, an emotional attachment to being able to scan the land and to look. Uh, and um, the last chapter of, rough, of, of that book, of uh, Wide Open Fairways, is all about the sort of strange psychological affinity that certain members have for trees. I don't get it. Um, you know, maybe they, maybe they had some sort of powerful sexual experience under it as a teen, and they never want to give up on it. But whatever it is, that has been the single biggest scourge in the United States on golf courses. Uh, and we're st- you know, there's a lot of progress that's been made. And I have no, uh, and I'm a, I'm an environmentalist. I believe in the ecological movement. I believe in the preservation of wetlands. And I know that um, 
there are a lot more trees in the United States now than there were 40 years ago. We lost a lot of farmland. It's all been taken over with woodland. So I, I have no uh, sympathy or tears to be uh, shed for the, the, the very small number of trees overall that are going to be lost or that need to be lost to clear out and to create healthy turf and healthy architecture on golf courses. Uh, it's a battle, and it just takes literally years and years. A friend of mine, Jeff Johnson at Minicata, the golf club, uh, tells me that uh, he, no matter what, he'll never get out the last hundred He's making progress. So, uh, but Oakmont set the tone. We're seeing it elsewhere, and um, you know, it's it's one of those things. People either get it or they don't. And it's um, my experience is that if you keep pr- uh, persisting and you do it, people appreciate it. If you ask them for permission, absolutely no, they'll oppose it, but they will uh, endorse the results each time. And yet. Even for all the progress that's made, if you ask them to, to take out one more pine tree, they'll still stop you. So it's a very strange emotional thing. I just think you have to just persist. And the arborists all know where it's going. Superintendents all know where it's going. And the, and the smart restoration architects know where it's going. So I think you just have to keep a uh, push. And uh, I love progressing. And I think what's very helpful is to show before and after photos uh, of how the golf course has changed. I always do that. So. Uh, I, I like to show photos of what you know, what you could have, and what you used to have. You must have come up against this quite a bit, Clay. You've done restoration work in Melbourne, of course, the Sandbelt, all very revered golf courses, and touching anything as course is is uh, is perceived as potentially not a good thing. How do you educate, Clay? And might get your thoughts on that too, Brad. How do you educate people? Uh, because that's really it's just a matter of education, isn't it, Clay? Of people understanding once you explain it to them and why these things are better if they're done this way. Surely most uh, see the sense, no? No, well, uh, no, because you can take out, you know, trees at a place like Victoria who have taken out a tremendous amount of trees in the last 15 years. Kicks and Heath, the same in the last 30. You, and, and every time you take a, a tree out or a group of trees out, people can see the improvement of the whole. But you have to go and have the argument all over again at the very next hole. So there's one hole in Victoria, the 11th hole, it's just absolutely... Should be the best hole in the golf course. It looks completely ridiculous. They've had Gil Hans down on the tee and just kind of laugh. They've had Tom Dokes down on the tee and just kind of laugh. And still, there's this group of trees. Seventeen years later, we're still trying to get them out. And the harder we try, the harder those who push back push back. And you know, the hole's going to be too easy if you take those trees out. Well, you know, and it goes back to that what we were talking about before about you know the, everything being centered around difficulty not about fun or is the whole better or worse it's that'll make the whole too easy well yeah it'll, it'll make it a bit easier for the 25 mark because it won't make any difference for Jeff Ogilvy who's just still going to have a nice little cut drive around the corner and a nine on the green yeah but uh, you know I, I have to agree with you I think at a certain point education is just talking to yourself because you know the answer so I, I'm a big believer in night lights go out there in the middle of the night uh, bring us bring enough sod you so you cover it up uh, just go cut it down pray for storms um, uh, if you have to use copper nails that works too sometimes to poison the tree uh, if you ask permission it'll never ha- it, it, it's too tough mm-hmm. and uh, the, you know I, I've seen everything tried. One of the one of the things that Medina did of all places is, you know, the, the big mistake is to put a red ribbon around the trees you're cutting to get a, an estimate from the contractor. They put a green ribbon around every tree they were saving, and it looked like, oh, it's not going to touch anything. So that was a smart move. Mm. Uh, the, 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 uh, the only problem is that, as we saw at last year's Ryder Cup, that's what it looks like after their tree program, and still looks like a dense forest. So, but. Uh, 
I, at a certain point, you can't educate people because you have to sort of start over every time. And it's, as Michael said, it's, uh, it's very frustrating. And it's so obvious to anyone who knows anything about architecture. Um, but I think you just have to be absolutely persistent. And you have to have a – to be honest, um, golf courses do not fu- – <laughs> excuse me, golf courses don't function well as democracies. I think you have to have a strong board. You have to have a strong superintendent. You have to have a pro who's on board and a GM and the hell with everybody else. Uh, and if you have nine people who buy drinks for everybody else and explain to them why this is the right thing to do uh, in the clubhouse, then uh, you'll win. But uh, if you ask permission or go for votes, you have no chance. Yeah, yeah Brad. Yeah, you know, as somebody, uh, you've you've put a lot into these books, and you, you when you you guys were discussing this, uh, you know, and I and I met the people at, at the clubs that Clates is talking about. You know, golfers are, are are connoisseurs of their sport. They're connoisseurs of wine or cigars or whatever it is. And yet, what? Why is it? Have you ever? been able to to resolve why it is that they have such confidence in their views and architecture with generally once you do a little probing with so little knowledge or 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 attempt to have even gained knowledge about this art form which we believe it is what 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 is it about that is it because this art form that you everybody actually plays the course and that that makes them feel like they're an authority uh, it's a good question because you go in knowing that that's the case. They think they know what they're talking about. And usually it's people who are powerful. Uh, they've been somewhat successful in business mm-hmm. or they were lucky enough to get born into the right household. Mm-hmm. So they think they deserve what they have. And, and it sort of translates over. The only thing I can tell you, I mean, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. I do a lot of these talks and kind of consults with clubs and all that. And I'll spend a day at a club, and by the end of the day, I know the golf course better than 85% of the people in that room. Mm. And I'll start talking about the slope on the 14th hole, and these people are lost. <laughs> so all I think you can do is show them, you know what? You have no clue what you're talking about. Uh, you're going to try to spend all your money saving a swamp maple or uh, you know, uh, uh, an Australian pine that's going to get a disease, and it's on the wrong soil base. And you have no idea literally what you're talking about. Uh, so that's all you can do is sort of expose them. Sometimes you have to confront them. Some, it's, but you go in knowing that they think they know what they're talking about, and uh, it's difficult. Uh, so um, it is odd. It is very odd. Somehow golf empowers uh, – basically golf empowers idiots. Uh, yeah. Or at least uh, to be fair, golf empowers people who think that a little bit of skill – or a little bit of success in life oh, qualifies yeah. them to be experts. And um, they wouldn't dare do that with the golf swing, but they seem to do it with golf courses. And it's yeah. odd. Some some guy, you know, as soon as he's a green chairman, he, he gets to put his mark on the golf course. God. Yeah. So, Quite yeah, it's it. funny the way you say that. They, they don't do that with the swing, but with golf mm-hmm. architecture, you're right. Yeah. Quite, yeah. You, you had a great story, didn't you, Quite, at, at Royal Queensland, and an argument about a bunker and where it was placed. I think it was in the middle of the fairway, and you had a member who was – Oh yeah, determined he was going to convince you how wrong you were. Just re- relay that because I thought that was a fabulous take on somebody who did actually get it in the end. Yeah, we Brad, we rebuilt a old golf course in Queensland. There was a bridge over the top of it. Corey Pavin called it the best course he'd ever played with a bridge built over the top of it, <laughs> the <laughs> finest of its kind I've ever yeah, seen. And, and they they actually replicated <laughs> the bridge. It's a long story. They lost six holes, so we, we rebuilt the entire golf course. On, on the ninth hole, we built a bunker right in the middle of the fairway, quite a small bunker. 
on a long par five, about 260 yards from the tee. And, you know, I knew this bunker had come in for a lot of criticism, which is actually a sign that it's a good bunker normally. But uh, there was a meeting with the members and the, the inevitable question came about this ridiculous bunker on, on the ninth hole where I hit a perfect drive and it goes in the bunker without ever seeing the irony and the stupidity of that statement. But I noted that, well, yeah, the bunker's in the middle of the fairway and there's 30 yards to the right of the bunker between the edge of the bunker and the fairway. Mm-hmm. And there's 25 yards between the bunker on the left and the, sorry, between the bunker and the left edge of the fairway. How about we just take the whole left side of the fairway and make that rough so the bunker would then be on the left side of a 30-yard wide fairway? And he said... Well, I'd never thought of it like that. And to his credit, he you know he accepted that <laughs> that argument made some sense. But you know, it had never dawned on him that it, it, that there was thirty yards right of the bunker to play to, and that's a decent width fairway. And why don't we just make right. the rest rough? Then the bunker would all of a sudden be fair. And you know, yeah. and it was staggering just the just the le- well, the lack of awareness of the question the bunker was asking, just the fact you had to deal with it. And it goes back to the. You know, the Trent Jones, Oakland Hills thing of forcing people just to play in straight lines. I mean, just, I mean, I mean you wrote the great book on Donald Ross. We, I was reading it, think, thinking about that last, that last night. What do you think Ross would make of Oak Hill now? Uh, boy. Well, I, I must say the, the green, sur- well, the, the green surfaces that he left there that are still there, I think there are 14 of them, they're actually in pretty good shape. Uh, the bunkering has been totally compromised. Uh, Trent Jones started that uh, in conjunction with the USGA, and I think he would. You know, it's hard to know because uh, Ross's style didn't stay the same; it evolved a little bit too. But uh, there are none of those cross bunkers, those, those um, diagonal things that were there um, on so many of the, of the really cool short holes. So I, I don't know. You know, Ross he wasn't much of a critic. He wouldn't have made a big storm, but. I don't think he would have recognized that course really for uh, in terms of the shaping of it that's left. Um, it's a tournament course. And uh, the odd thing, of course, is that at Oak Hill, the course that they don't play is actually more Donald Ross because they haven't touched it over on the uh, the West course. So, yeah, what's that course like? Is it pretty good still? Uh, it's okay. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not like a lot of people who think that because it's old, it's great. Uh, they've sort of neglected the green surfaces have gotten a little bit rounded off and they, they've taken some of the mounding out there as well. But the character is all there and they are bringing some of it back. And they didn't try to lengthen it, which is good. Um, so it's certainly an interesting golf course. Uh, more for its uh, historical value, I guess, if you'd say. Um, but it's got a lot of neat character in the ground. But uh, the odd thing, I went around with the, when I was at Oak Hill in the pre- writing my preview this year for the uh, PGA, I went around with one of the pros, and I'm showing, he's been there 11 years, and I'm showing him the old remnant bunkers that he'd never even seen. Wow. Uh, you know, you can, ju- it, you can pick response? them out. What was his response, Brad? He thought it was pretty cool as he hit a 280 in the air right over them, you know. <laughs> he kind of looked back and think, oh, those are quaint. But uh, you, all you can do is show how this would play for the average golfer. And I, I must say, I think one of the big problems in modern golf, uh, uh, even with their pro-ams that they have, I think the modern tour player, and particularly the modern tour player who becomes an architect, they have no idea how real people actually play golf. If, and I think it's, I, I love watching any foursome play any hole of golf. It's, it's a scandal what goes on. 
And uh, what do you mean? I think more architects actually, I think in terms of the struggles that people have just yeah. playing from tee to green. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish more architects would pay attention to that. And I, there's not enough actual conversation. You know, I hate it when I'm watching a, a Gary McCord comment at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am about a, you know, there's a 12 handicapper who, who maybe hits his fourth shot onto a par five and he'll just dismiss him as a hacker. And just the way in which uh, the average golfer is, is portrayed, I think, is so scandalously uh, demeaning. And so if you're, if you're an average golfer, you, you're, it's like you have no standing at a club. You can't comment. You can't participate. But women in particular are totally uh, depoliticized and demoralized. And I think it really has an effect because the conversation about golf at clubs is all about the back tee and the yardage and the pros and all that stuff. And I think we've got to get more people involved um, in, in actual decision making I think it would help you reckon that's true Clates you speak to a lot of members and memberships and people on committees and boards and that sort of thing do you get the sense that what Brad's saying there is, is right well no doubt we just rebuilt Torquay's a club for the RACV I'm not sure if I told this story last week there's a part three there where we built kind of a wetland across the front of the green and I watched four I watched twelve three groups of women play it the other day eleven of them hit it in the water um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was down there with Mike Cocking and it was like, are we the biggest bunch of idiots in the world? No. The fact was the lady captain has insisted that they play off the back tee. That's where it's right. A 130-yard carry across the water. There's 50 yards of tee in front of that. Why aren't you playing this thing? They played the 13th hole at Marion at 98 yards in the US Open for the best players in the world. Why aren't you playing this hole at, a, at 90 yards or 100 yards where you can all hit it over the water, you can all get on the green, but it's this eight handicap women's captain who insists on, well, we've got to play off the back tees. It's just, I mean, talking about, I mean, watching golf, I mean, I've never been more embarrassed or just, it was so ridiculous where they were playing from. But how do you deal with that when, you know, it's the club themselves who, well, we've got to play off the back tees. Well, it was, it was just insanity. And when you, when you designed the hole, was your was your intention obviously then, Clades, for the women to play from a long way forward there from yeah, absolutely. eighty or ninety yards? That that was yeah. the women's tee, so to speak. I mean, I mean, there's a tee at seventy yards. You know, it's like just play it from where you can get over the water. I mean, it's just you know, it's madness. But you, you know, it's what, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how. You know, I, I've had this experience because I'm involved now installing a, a, a forward tees at a couple of clubs. And uh, when we went and talked to the women, they were all opposed to it. And we said, you know what, we're doing it anyway. And uh, they lo- two weeks after they opened, they really enjoy it. And it helps to take – we took red off the color because mm-hmm. red is kind of stigmatized. And it, it enabled the, the senior golfers to move up. And we took gold off that because it looks like you're old and gray or whatever. So you, the color coding is important. But what we found is that they really enjoyed it. Uh, and if you, when we asked them, they said no, but you know we were going to do it anyway because they had a couple of holes there. It's one club where it was a 130-yard carry. Women can't hit the ball that far when they have to. Um, so I, you know, if you provide a, a little more forgiving platform, um, my experience is more and more people will use it. So that's all you can do. But you can't force people to, to – I don't know. I, I, I always thought golf was supposed to be fun. I didn't think it was supposed to be hard work. Uh, you, you got a completely you – know, that was 20th century golf, Brad. We're playing 21st century golf now. It's a completely different beast. Big-headed yeah. drivers and balls that fly in the air, so that's how you've got to play the game. Here's an idea, Clates, and we'll wrap it up in a tick, but perhaps next time you're, uh, you're at a club talking to a membership, and I've often thought this would be a great idea, once a month or once every couple of months, make the club competition, for the men in particular, off the very forward tees. 
so that there's no stigma to it. This is the comp we're playing. You can dress it up as fun or whatever and see the reaction of the players as they come off the course about how enjoyable that might be. How do you reckon that would go, Clades? If you force the men to play off the women's tees, quote-unquote, once a month or whatever, how do you reckon they'd enjoy the game? Would that have some impact, do you think? Probably. I mean, once a year they play off the women's tees at Metropolitan, my club, that they, they do that. They Then it works out. You know, it's quick and it's they shoot good scores and they enjoy it. And, you know, it's a, it's a long championship course and the majority of members hit less than two greens around and you, you can't imagine it's that interesting or that much fun. But, again, it's, you know, the ones that struggle the most are sometimes the ones who, do, you know, defend the status quo and they're, you know, they're worried about the... We've got this new slope system oh, here, God. Brad, so you'll be, you'll be pleased to know it. <laughs> trying it's to have your formula to, to decide how difficult our golf courses are. but It's going to make your life hell, isn't it, Clates? Seriously, that's going to make your life hell. be well, like the old par argument. Right? It's got to be par 72, got to have four par fives, must have four par threes, and must have a slope of this. One of the guys who brought the system in, who's no longer on the board of the Golf <laughs> Association, told me, he said, you'll have to understand this system because it's going to change the way you design golf courses. Right. Which was a pretty staggering statement, I thought. Anyway. Yeah. yeah well, but you will deal with the legacy of it, won't you? It's just another argument. Well, I think you just go and design what you design and they can figure it out for themselves. But once you start designing for a... I mean, the, the fear of it is that people, which is not right, people assume the, stroke, the, the slope rating is a difficult in the golf course, where it's the... Apparently, there's a relative difficulty. That's right. As I understand but, it, yes. But there are clubs who will see a high slope rating as a badge of honour and that they'll narrow the fairways and they'll deepen the bunkers and they'll make the greens faster and do all these crazy things just in an attempt to create the perception that their golf course is one of the most difficult in the city. Yeah. Whereas they should be doing the opposite. It'll be Australia's, uh, Australia's answer to the stimp meter, Brad. I think you have the, the stimp meter in America, doesn't it? Isn't that what they do? They post on Twitter some courses what their stimp reading is, and that's supposed to attract golfers. We'll probably go the same way with slope, you know. With I have seen, yeah, uh, well, uh, 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 I don't know if we're X-rated here, but I, I always thought the stimp meter was a device designed by a green chairman to shove up the ass of the superintendent. <laughs> the, uh, I've actually seen clubs that, that post their stint meter feed reads of of fairways. Oh wow! Uh, oh. And and they'll and they'll post on a daily basis the stint meter reads of every green. I've seen that. Oh. How did we come to that? That's bizarre. Absolutely yeah. bizarre. Well, how do we come to pin sheets? Yeah, pin sheets are the same thing. Or you know, uh, there, there's a point. There's a tipping point in the dis, in 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 the emergence of completely dysfunctional golf. Well, you have red, white, and blue flags to yep. denote relative depth. We have that. You've got yeah. pin sheets. We don't uh, have that here in Australia, a, do we, Clates, so much? We do. We have it. We, we do. We have it. At, I think the lakes do it, and it just drives me completely. What, they hand you a pin sheet no. at the start of the day in the pro shop? Sorry? They hand you a pin sheet at the start no, of the day? No, they've got red, white, and blue Oh, yeah, flags. the, the colored flags, yes. That, we do red have that. The front and yellow for the middle and blue for the black or something for the back. I mean, it's just – I mean, it just takes away any power of – Need for it to have any power of observation or look across at the third green when you're on the second tee, or I mean, just it's pathetic. Well, we still have the moral superiority of not having pin sheets yet, Clates. So in Australia, we yeah. can claim that we're, I, I, <laughs> we're a superior I wanna, golf culture. I want to see a PGA Tour event where, where there's no yardage, where you have to eyeball every yeah. shot. I think it'd be great to watch. And yeah, ten clubs. How good would that be? 
uh, it would certainly favour some of the players. Gents, we're going to have to wrap it up. Brad, this happens with every guest we seem to have on the show. They always seem to be good. I could talk to you for another six hours. It would be absolutely fascinating. We won't make the listeners endure that. We'll uh, we'll wrap it up there and say thank you very much for your time. It's been fabulous to have you aboard, and we'd love to have you back sometime. Uh, now that I'm on Skype, I can do anything. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, and Brad, where uh, where's where's the best place for people to buy the, the book? book? Good point. Uh, it's called Wide Open Fairways, University of Nebraska Press. You can get it on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Okay. Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Now, is it on audio books? Not yet. Uh, it's 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 it, but it's just coming out in ebook form. Um, okay. So I, I posted on uh, Golf Club Atlas about that, but it's coming out on ebook form. Oh, so you've got the hard copy clothes. I assumed you must have downloaded it. I thought no, no, I ordered it from Amazon. I don't know, a few months ago. I think it just arrived a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I wouldn't have been able. To, I thought I could download it and read it. I just didn't have the time. I was feeling quite uh, quite bad about that. Well, I don't need to. I wouldn't have had time to have had, get, got the copy of the book in before we interview. Brad, been fabulous to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time, Jeff Shackelford. As always, a thank you to you, my friend. Great to have you. Yeah, board. thank you. And uh, Clayton's down there in Melbourne. Always great to get your thoughts. And it was great to hear you uh, hear you uh, talking golf course architecture. One of your pet topics. Thank you, Jeff. Have a good, right. have a good week, Jess. Yeah, we will do. And that wraps it up for State of the Game this week. Enjoyed it immensely. Looking forward to doing it all again in a couple of weeks' time. I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.